The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out that you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH on and your host. Today is Thursday, so I'm delighted to welcome back my dear friend Dr. Peter Hammond for his regular weekly appearance. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And today we are going to be continuing with our series on Stephen Mitford Goodson's book. The show title is The Real Story of the History of Central Banking and Its Enslavement of Mankind. Peter regards this as one of the 21 most important books he has ever read. There'll be a link to it on his website where you can support his family by buying the book. This is part three. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today? Yes, Stephen Mitford Goodson was a good friend and he was a popular guest speaker at the Reformation Society. And I must say, his books are extraordinary. He's, uh, you normally would think of economists as actually dry, dusty, boring, but not this one. Uh, yes, Stephen Goodson was director of the South African Reserve Bank for nine years and he's well qualified to speak on this matter. Uh, he also wrote the book Inside the South African Reserve Bank, Its Origins and Secrets Exposed. He's written biographies on young Christian Smuts. The reason why he wrote on General Smuts is because it was under General Smuts that the Reserve Bank was instituted in South Africa in the 1920s. And so he he, uh, went into his background, which was fascinating. He also did a a biography on Hendrik Favut, who was assassinated. And uh, the reason why he did that is because he was convinced uh, Hendrik Favut was assassinated because he instituted the Hook Commission. Uh, Judge Hook was uh, appointed to investigate the role of the Anglo-American and the um, De Beers, Diamond Mines and the Bankers uh, in subverting South Africa. And he was looking into alternatives to the South Reserve Bank and phasing out the South Reserve Bank and taking back full economic sovereignty to South Africa. And then the man was assassinated. So uh, it was shortly after John F. Kennedy was assassinated for the same reason. So Stephen Goodson's written books on all of these things. And this book, A History of Central Banking and Enslavement of Mankind, now we've already looked in the first two parts uh, of the series at how the moneylenders have been a hidden hand uh, behind uh, so many of the wars and revolutions, depressions, recessions, social upheavals, assassinations uh, through the years. And uh, Stephen Goodson went all the way back to the Roman Empire and Julius Caesar, just absolutely extraordinary, showing that 
the world wars, the Napoleonic Wars, the American Revolution, um, the rise and the fall of Julius Caesar, the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya, um, the revolution against Tsar Nicholas in Russia, and so much more relates to the hidden hand in history. And that understanding the role of central banking and its enslavement of mankind helps us understand the past, the present, and the future. And of course, we want to build a better future. So Stephen Goodson points out that the power to create money, to lend money, to accumulate money or interest on credit, and then to relend that interest for further interest in perpetuity creates pervasive worldwide debt. Debt from the individual, debt to the family, debt to the entire state. And the ability to operate a fraudulent credit and loan system has been known through the centuries. And he points out that these money changes are the same types that Jesus whipped out of the temple. And uh, that these money changers and money lenders have persuaded governments that banking is best left to private interests. And it's what Stephen Mitford Goodson's proving is that, in fact, it is best not to left to the private banking interest. Now, we exposed the fraudulent, absolutely extraordinary uh, steps that were taken about in establishing the Bank of England, with not even 10% of the members of parliament being present to even vote uh, for this bill, and how the um, uh, Federal Reserve Bank of the United States was actually also created by absolute fraud, and uh, with a minority of the 43 senators supporting the bill, um, and uh, extraordinary amounts that refused to vote, 27 refused to vote, five members absent, 25 votes against it. And so only a minority voted for this bill. And when the US Federal Reserve Bank came into power, in, uh, into effect in 1914, since then, the dollar lost 97% of its purchasing power. And there's been 19 recessions and the Great Depression and uh, a national debt has soared to over 17 trillion in 2014 when the book was published and unfunded liabilities exceed 240 trillion. It's all much more than that since. So absolute disaster in 100 years of the existence of the United States Federal Reserve Bank, there hasn't ever been so much as a public audit. Uh, well, okay, we're looking at, at uh, this week some positive examples. Some people say, well, is there an alternative? Yes, there are alternatives. And it may surprise our listeners to know that the State Bank of the Russian Empire was a phenomenally successful and effective bank and an alternative to the Rothschild uh, debt-creating usury banks. So uh, we've tended to believe a lot of the propaganda that Russia was badly run and extremely poor and uh, declining and stagnant and uh, that in the Bolshevik Revolution kind of brought them into the 20th century. In fact, the truth is the exact opposite of that. Uh, so from September the 14th to June 18th, uh, June 1815, the Congress of Vienna was held to settle issues arising out of the French Revolutionary Wars. There had been 25 years of French Revolutionary Wars and Napoleonic Wars and the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire. And so uh, behind the scenes, Nathan Mayer Rothschild proposed the formation of a new world order concentrated around central banking. And all the major powers were indebted to the Rothschild banks, with the exception of one. In Europe, of the eight great powers, only one of the empires was not indebted to a Rothschild bank, and that was the Russian Empire under Tsar Alexander I. And Alexander I refused to comply with Rothschild's devious scheme and derailed it. And he established the Holy Alliance between Austria, Prussia, and Russia, which was signed in 1815 by Emperor Francis 
I of Austria, um, Kaiser Frederick Wilhelm III of Prussia, and of course, Tsar Alexander I. And he rejected the Rothschilds' offer to set up a central bank in Russia. Now, we're not sure of his motives. He's certainly a dedicated Christian, but Alexander I probably distrusted the shady banker. He might have been aware of the perils of central banking. We don't know his reasoning, but he did decline wisely. But this also incurred the vindictive, unrelenting wrath of the Rothschilds. So Major General Count Cherup Spiridovich, uh, who uh, wrote the book, The Secret World Government or Hidden Hand, and uh, this came out, published in 1926, published in New York. Um, so Cherup Spiridovich stated that the Rothschild house was responsible for the assassination of the last five czars of Russia and that they would obtain their Talmudic vengeance in spectacular fashion 102 years after uh, the failure of the uh, Congress of Vienna um, uh, with the murder of the entire family of the Romanov ruling family of, of the czar and, and his wife and four daughters, son and even the family doctor. Uh, so, the reason <clears throat> is explained here. So, the State Bank of the Russian Empire was founded in 1860 to boost trade and to strengthen the monetary system. And um, it minted and printed the nation's coins and notes. It regulated the country's money supply through commercial banks, provided industry and commerce with the lowest interest rate loans. Basically, it, it wasn't really interest rate loans. It was less than 1%. It was more like a handling fee. Uh, so uh, the, the Russian state bank did not work on credit. They did not uh, borrow from any Rothschild bank. Uh, they uh, provided uh, huge amounts of, of um, uh, currency at virtually no interest, uh, therefore uh, without debt. It had vast gold reserves. In fact, Russia had the largest gold reserves in the world. And the gold reserves exceeded their banknote issue by more than 100%, uh, except for the year 1906. So by 1914, the Russian state bank had become the most influential lending institution in Europe. Uh, now, it's it's intriguing uh, that um, there, there's a uh, another separate report that's been done by Stephen Goodson, Murdering the Tsars, the Rothschild Connection, which was published in the Bond Review. Uh, where he showed that the average age at death of Russian czars was 40, was 53. <coughs> and none of these last five czars reached an old age. Um, and there was one assassination of the other, and that's actually quite shocking. But because of Russia's very wise non-usury banking system, they had the smallest national debt in the world. So, for example, a number of rubles of debt per inhabitant, France had 288 rubles of debt per inhabitant uh, back in 1914. Great Britain had 169 per uh, citizen. Germany had 135. Russia only had a 58 ruble per inhabitant uh, debt. So Russia had the lowest debt per capita in Europe. Uh, by 1914, 83% of the interest of the national debt uh, in Russia was funded by the profits of the Russian state railways. And only 2% of the debt was held abroad. By 1916, the total length of, of railway lines in Russia was over 100,000 kilometers. 100,000 kilometers railways. I mean, we thought that Russia was backward. In fact, Stephen Goodson shows not so. The Russian commercial and canon, uh, canal, um, canal 
tonnage was 11 million tons. Now, that's more than the British merchant tonnage, which was 10 million tons. So uh, literally, although the British merchant fleet was often high seas, whereas the Russian was more canals, rivers, and uh, uh, the coastal vessels. But nevertheless, uh, Russia had more commercial tonnage than even Great Britain, which had the greatest merchant navy in the world. In 1861, Tsar Alexander II abolished serfdom, which was about 30% of the population were set free. By 1914, very little land remained in the possession of the Russian um, estate owners, and meaning nobility. So 80% of the farmable or arable land was in the hands of the peasants. Uh, and this land was held in trust by the village communes. And uh, with the passing of the Stolypin Act, uh, Stolypin, um, uh, Petro Stolypin was the prime minister of Russia from 1906 to 1911. 1911, he was assassinated by the terrorist Dmitry Bogorov, whose uh, real name was Mordecai um, Gerakovich. Uh, he was a Jewish terrorist, and he assassinated this reforming prime minister, Petro Stolpin. Well, the uh, free land um, that 80% of the Arab land was in the hands of the peasants uh, were um, uh, called Stolpin um, uh, villages and uh, it was because the Stolpen Act of 1906. So peasants could obtain individual title with hereditary rights to property. So they got property rights. Well, by 1913, <clears throat> two million families had availed themselves of this opportunity to acquire what became known as Stolpen Farms. 19 million acres, that's over seven and a half million hectares, were allotted to these individual peasant proprietors by land committees and funded by the Peasant State Bank. And the Peasant State Bank was described at times as the greatest, most socially beneficial institution of land credit in the world. Now, you and I, and most of our listeners, probably thought that the poor peasants were so oppressed under the czars, and that's why there had to be a Russian revolution. In fact, not so. They were, in fact, advancing phenomenally. So between 1901 and 1912, loans to the peasants from the Peasant State Bank increased from 222 million rubles to 1.168 billion rubles. So increase in uh, land ownership and land productivity in Russia uh, between 1901 and 1912. So um, the last star of Russia, uh, Nicholas II, was obviously a great reformer. And not that he's portrayed that way in Hollywood films, of course. So agricultural production under Tsar Nicholas soared so that by 1913, Russia became the world's breadbasket. So would you believe that uh, Russia was producing 30% of the world's oats? 30% of the world's oat production was produced in Russia. The wheat, 31% of all the world's wheat was grown in Russia. A phenomenal amount. Um, oats, uh, a huge amount, over 30%. Rye, 67% of all the rye in the world was being produced in Russia. And of barley, 42% of the world's barley uh, production was made in Russia. In fact, Russian agricultural production of cereals exceeded the combined production of Argentina, Canada, and the United States by 25% more. So imagine more than all of North America and Argentina combined, Russia was producing. Do you know by 1913, Russia had more than half of all the horses in the world, 37 million horses in Russia. Not only did they have more than half of the horses in the world, they produced 80% of the world's flax. They provided more than 50% of the world's egg imports. So far from being backward, Russia was coming out of the 
Middle Ages, very strong and fast. Mining and industrial output was expanded by huge margins. So just between 1885 and 1913, under Tsar Nicholas, the coal production increased from 259 million poods to 2 billion poods, uh, more than that. So uh, absolutely like um, a thousand percent increase in coal production uh, over that period of time from 1885 to 1913. Cast iron production rose from 20 5 million poods in 1890 to 1 billion poods in 1913. Petroleum production rose from 491 million poods in 1906 to 600 million in 1916. Uh, from 1870 to 1914, industrial output in Russia grew by 1% per annum in Great Britain, 2.7% per annum in the United States, and by 3.5% per annum in Russia. So Russia was increasing its industrial output faster than Britain and America combined. Uh, during the same period from 1890 to 1930, industrial production quadrupled. The Russian industries were able to satisfy 80% of the demand for manufactured goods in the country. And throughout the last 20 years of peacetime imperial rule, from 1895 to 1914, the gross domestic product increased 10% per annum. I mean, what country would not want 10% per annum increase in GDP? We haven't been there for a very long time. So with the Russian state bank creating the people's money out of nothing at zero interest, as opposed to the rest of the world, which was allowing central banks to be basically parasitic private banks creating their own money supply at usurious rates of interest, it should come as no surprise that in 1912, Russia, the lowest level of taxation in the world. Lowest level of taxation. Would you have ever got that impression from watching Dr. Zhivago or any of the other famous films on, on Russia? Well, throughout this period of state banking, there was no inflation and there was no unemployment. So <clears throat> direct taxes in rubles per inhabitant uh, in Great Britain in 1912, 26% of, um, of British uh, in, inhabitants' income was taken by state or local taxes in Britain. Germany, less than half that, 12% uh, total taxation. France, 12%. Austria, 10%. Russia, 2.6% of income was taxed uh, back in 1912. So the lowest taxation uh, per capita in the world at that time. Uh, indirect taxes, also Russia, vastly less than everyone else. Between 1897-1913, state receipts rose from 1.4 million gold rubles to 3.4 million gold rubles. Uh, so massive increase, uh, more than much more than double um, uh, increase of, of gold rubles. By 1914, the surplus on the budget account was 512 million gold rubles. There was no increase in taxation. And the foreign trade balance between exports and imports were in surplus. They were exporting vastly more than they were importing. That is the sign of a very healthy economy. And so the health of the Russian economy can also be gauged by the tables of gold reserves. And Stephen Gutson, a list showing that the, <clears throat> the Central Bank of, of England um, had 331 million um, <clears throat> In gold, uh, where's the Reichsbank in Germany, 411 million, um, where's the Bank of France um, uh, was a billion, 
whereas uh, the State Bank of the Russian Empire, 1.5 billion. Uh, so uh, there's no doubt Russia had more gold reserves than any other country in the world and more than the next two countries uh, combined. So an independent study by British lawyers conclude that the Russian code of laws and judiciary in 1912 were the most advanced and impartial in the world, not the way it's portrayed in Dr. Shivago and Nicholas and Alexandra and, and other films in Russia. Well, elementary education was free right up to university level. Very nominal uh, fees were charged. Between 1906 and 1914, 10,000 schools were opened every single year, 10,000 new schools. Uh, absolutely staggering. Russian universities were renowned for the high academic standards. And in labor relations, uh, the Russians were actually pioneers. They abolished child labor long before Great Britain abolished child labor. Uh, Russia was the first industrialized country to pass laws limiting the hours of work in factories and mines. And interestingly, strikes uh, were permitted and minimal in the czarist times, although there were, strikes were banned under the Soviet Union. The trade unions were recognized in 1906. There was an inspectorate of labor strictly controlling working conditions in factories. Uh, social insurance was introduced in 1912. Labor laws were so advanced and humane that President William Taft of the United States was moved to say that the Emperor of Russia has passed workers' legislation far nearer to perfection than that of any other democratic country in the world. So interesting that the people of all races in the Russian Empire had an equality of status and opportunity unparalleled in the modern world in terms of law and opportunity and real income and the growth in the economy. So his imperial majesty Tsar Nicholas II who reigned from 1894 to 1917, and his state bank created a workers' paradise unrivaled in the history of mankind. That being the conclusion of Stephen Mitford Goodson um, looking at the facts and the balance sheets. So on November the 7th, 1917, the Rothschilds, fearful that replication of this extraordinary example of freedom and prosperity would destroy their malicious banking empire, instigated and financed a Bolshevik revolution in Russia which wrecked and ruined a wonderful country and resulted in the deaths by murder or, or starvation of 66 million people, most of those Christians. Alexander Solzhenitsyn documents that at least 66 million Christians were murdered under uh, the Bolshevik Revolution and the Soviet Union. And interestingly, um, uh, he uh, quotes in his uh, work, uh, from the Swiss historian Jürgen Graf, uh, that uh, according to the Hebrew magazine, Hebrew American magazine of 1920, September the 10th, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia was the work of Jewish planning and Jewish dissatisfaction. Our plan is to establish a new world order. What worked so wonderfully in Russia is going to become a reality for the whole world. Uh, that from the American Hebrew magazine of September the 10th, 1920, quoted uh, by uh, Joseph Stalin. Interestingly, Stephen Goodson includes a comment from Winston Churchill, uh, Zionism versus Bolshevism, a struggle for the soul of the Jewish people. 1920, in the Sunday Illustrated Herald, Winston Churchill, no less, wrote that the revolution in Russia was a result of a world conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization, for the reconstitution of society on the basis of arrested or retarded development of envious malevolence and impossible equality, which has been steadily growing. 
It has been the mainstream of every subversive movement during the 19th century. And now at last, this band of extraordinary personalities from the underworld of the great cities of Europe and America have gripped the Russian people by the hair of their heads and become practically the undisputed masters of that enormous empire. That, written by Winston Churchill in 1920 in an article entitled Zionism versus Bolshevism, a struggle for the soul of the Jewish people. Quite extraordinary. So that's just about the Russian Central Bank before the revolution. Uh, an amazing example of obvious success. Then there's another good example of success that Stephen Goodson gives us, and that's the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. The Commonwealth Bank of Australia was inspired by King O'Malley, an American who found out the secrets of fractional reserve banking while working for his uncle's bank in New York in the 1880s. Well, when the bank's first governor, uh, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Sir Denison Miller was asked where he proposed obtaining capital for his bank, he replied, what capital? I don't need any capital. My capital is the entire wealth and credit of the whole of Australia. And so that governor said there's no need to get external credit because Australia's got natural resources. Australia can issue currency because Australia's got everything they need and they will uh, pay um, their way as they go along without any need to pay interest to some um, private bank overseas in England, for example. So with an advance of 10 £10,000 from government, which was quickly repaid, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia was founded in 1912. And although it was established as a private bank, it operated effectively as a state bank with the power to carry on all business generally transacted by the bank, including that of a savings bank. And the bank was entitled to raise capital through the sale of indebtedness secured by national credit, and its profits were equally divided into two funds, a reserve fund to meet any liabilities incurred by the bank and a redemption fund to redeem any um, debentures or other stock issued by the bank. And thereafter, 50% of its profits were allotted for the liquidation of the national debt. Well, for the next 12 years, notwithstanding the World War I, Australia enjoyed one of the greatest areas of its prosperity. And by providing government loans at nominal rates of interest, effectively two-thirds of 1% per annum, it enabled the country to embark on a massive infrastructure program. It included the provision of 18 million uh, Australian dollars for the construction of dams, such as the Murrabigee Irrigation System, the Great Transcontinental Railroad, uh, the electricity power plants, gas works, harbours, roads, tram works. In addition, the fruit, wheat, and wool crops of the farmers were financed for an amount of 3 million Australian dollars, nominal rates of interest, less than 1%. It made available 4 million Australian dollars to purchase 15 cargo steamers to transport Australia's growing exports. Another 8 million Australian dollars was allocated to subsidise housing. Now, World War One cost Australia $700 million, but this was financed by the Australian a Commonwealth Bank as a non-interest-bearing debt. <coughs> so this phenomenal period of prosperity was terminated in 1924 when a bill which placed control of bank in the hands of a directorate composed of a governor, secretary, treasury, and six persons actively involved in agriculture, finance, industry for different periods of years. And this was introduced by Prime Minister Stanley Bruce, who was Prime Minister from 1924 to 1929 in Australia, and Dr. Earl Page as his coalition partner. Uh, now, they were the leaders of the National Party and the Country Party, respectively. 
Well, there's suspicion that Bruce may have been bribed because what he did was completely against the best interests of the Australian people. During his term of office, the Australian government borrowed £230 million from the City of London, effectively from the Rothschilds. By 1927, the federal and state debt had surpassed a billion pounds, and the budget was in deficit. So obviously going to borrowing money from usurers did not work. Anyone who can do maths should recognize that. And so in 1924, the bill was proclaimed as an act, and the act placed the bank under the control of a body of men who later deprived of, of the right to create the money's money supply free of debt and interest. In 1927, the Australian bank lost its savings bank subsidiary, and uh, it later became a central bank operating exclusively for the benefit of the private banks. The final betrayal of the Australian Commonwealth Bank, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, uh, was in 1947, when the House of Representatives voted by 55 to 5 votes for it to become a member of the International Monetary Fund, and this way subject to the dictates and decrees of the Rothschild-controlled Bank for International Settlements. So we've got, in the case of the Russian State Bank and the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, examples of how you can have massive prosperity and growth and huge increase in infrastructure uh, uh, countrywide as a result of a bank that's not controlled uh, by the usury interests and operates without charging interest. At this point, Stephen Goodson introduced us to the World uh, War, the First World War. It started on the 28th of June 1914 when Gavrilo Princip, a member of a terrorist group, the Black Hand, assassinated the heir to the Austrian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie on their 10th wedding anniversary in Sarajevo. Well, uh, interestingly, uh, it is uh, put here in the book, uh, quoting from uh, the Leon de Ponkin's book, Secret Powers Behind the Revolution, uh, which also quotes from the assassin's trial, uh, the assassin Gavrilo Princip, who murdered the Austrian Archduke, and from the book Red Sympathy, uh, that uh, during the interrogation, it was found that Trotsky, uh, Leon Tr Trotsky, otherwise known as uh, as Lev uh, Davidovich uh, Brownstein, um, that uh, in fact Trotsky had been a collaborator with Gavrilo Princip. This was actually a Marxist assassination, and uh, everyone involved in it seems to have been Jewish, uh, from Leon Trotsky, uh, of course, uh, Levy um, uh, Bronstein, and uh, Vladimir Lenin, uh, who was named Yulinov when adopted, his real name was Zebrabaum. And uh, we've got the different details here that on his paternal side, Lenin's father was Bruyat, um, a non-ethnic Russian. His maternal great-grandmother was Mushi Isevich Blank, and his grandfather, Cyril Mishevich Blank, uh, who later changed his forename to Alexander Zev Ben Shlomo, and uh, that Lenin's Jewish mother was Maria Blank. And when his parents died, he and his brother were adopted by a Jewish family. In 1929, Lenin's sister, um, Anna, uh, proposed to Stalin that his ancestry be disclosed so as to counter the rampant anti-Semitism uh, and to instill in the masses his Jewish revolutionary spirit. So, notwithstanding the fact that Lenin was revered by the masses already, Stalin told her to keep quiet as disclosure that he was Jewish 
would make everyone realize that the Bolshevik Revolution was Jewish. And uh, not only was Lenin Jewish, but so was Stalin, according to these reports, and of course, uh, Trotsky without question. Uh, so according to the Bronwood Jewish Journal of 1992, uh, the uh, quoting also from the Times of 1920, that 458 out of a total of 556 principal state functionaries in the Soviet Union were Jews. And that's 82% of uh, the top leaders in the Soviet Union were Jewish, 82%. Now, considering they were a very small percentage of the population, it's very much out of proportion. And uh, uh, he also quotes from Professor Anthony Sutton's Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, how the bankers in the United States, especially in New York, financed Trotsky and the Bolshevik Revolution, and that was well documented. Huh? When the Bolshevik Revolution began, Trotsky was actually in New York, and although he hadn't worked during his exile there, he was able to travel through Canada with millions of dollars in gold and uh, uh, arrived uh, in uh, Petersburg in order to be able to uh, kit out all the Checker, who later became the NKVD secret police with leather jackets and the latest in weaponry and Rolls Royces and Lenin had vast amounts of Rolls Royces and armored trains and they lacked for none of the equipment. They had all the finances that the, the Russian army didn't have after the ruinous uh, uh, first three years of the World War. And so uh, there's no doubt that Wall Street bankrolled the Bolshevik Revolution to the tune of many millions and uh, the best enemy money can buy also by Sutton. Uh, proved how they kept them going as well. So, uh, the United States Senate in 1921, you'll recall that in 1920, the Democrats in America lost across the board. Uh, President, House of Representatives, and the Senate was all across the board. The Democrats have voted out in um, absolute revulsion and disgust of them violating America's long-standing uh, tradition of not getting involved in Europe's wars. And uh, the fact that they'd been lied to, this is the war to end all wars and a war for democracy and freedom and peace and all the propaganda that had been done under uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was one of the most wicked rulers America's ever had, and uh, uh, leading to the League of Nations of Versailles Treaty and all the rest that came out of it. And so the Republicans swept the Senate and the House and uh, the presidency out of the hands of Democrats. And they enacted the strongest laws imaginable to prevent America ever again being manipulated into another banker's war, any more foreign wars, any more of Europe's wars. And uh, during the Senate hearings in 1921, this was recorded. Full responsibility for the First World War lies on the shoulders of the international Jewish bankers. They are responsible for millions of dead and dying. So that's a U.S. congressional uh, record, uh, the 67th Congress, fourth sitting Senate document 346-1921. Uh, what's also quoted um, uh, in the book here is the 1928 Jewish writer Marcus Eli Ravage, who wrote, you have not begun to appreciate the real depth of our guilt. We are intruders. We are subverters. We have taken your natural world, your ideals, your destiny, and played havoc with them. We have been at the bottom, not merely of the last great war, but of nearly all your wars, and not only of the Russian, but every other revolution in your history. We have brought discord and confusion and frustration into your personal and public life. We are still doing it. No one can tell how long we shall continue to do this. Uh, now, this is uh, published, um, quoting Marcus Eli 
Ravage, published in 1928, uh, the Century Magazine, uh, volume 115. And uh, this has been uh, uh, republished in other books and so on, all of this in the book by Stephen Goodson. So he states also that further confirmation of these incontrovertible facts was revealed in a conversation between the British Member of Parliament, Victor Cazalet, and Henry Ford. Now, when uh, Henry Ford uh, was um, asked who the international finances were, Ford replied, I have several books who will tell you who they are. They were responsible for the last war, and they will in future always be capable of creating a war when they feel their pockets need one. And uh, Henry Ford wrote um, extensively on this. Trade rivalry and competing alliances, misunderstood mobilizations are often offered as the real primary cause of World War I. But as Stephen Goodson documents, the real reasons in order of importance were A, to destroy the Russian Empire and its state bank, which did not use usury. Number two, to break up the empires that had protected Europe for centuries from threats from the East, and that's particularly the Austro-Hungarian and German empires. And also to break up the Ottoman Empire uh, in order to better control the oil reserves of the Middle East. And then thirdly, the theft of Palestine, the creation of a Zionist puppet state under the direct control of the Rothschilds, whose emblem, uh, the uh, so-called Star of David, um, which was the six-pointed star, uh, became part of the flag, in fact, even of that state. So by the end of 1916, uh, the British and French armies were in danger of losing the war, and the French army had already had a massive mutiny, and the Western Front was worse than a stalemate. And the British had lost their naval supremacy at the Battle of Jutland, 3rd of May 1916. The German Navy, although outnumbered two to one, humiliated the invincible Royal Navy by sinking twice as many ships as they lost. They sank 12 British vessels for the loss of six. Uh, the uh, German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, lost 2,500 sailors in the battle, but the British lost over 6,000. And so both the Kaisers of the Austrian Empire and of uh, the German Empire were desperate to bring an end to this fratricidal, pointless slaughter, quoting them. And there were many offers made in 1915 and 1916 by the Kaisers to bring an end to the war and even to return to the previous uh, pre-war boundaries. And that seemed to be the only sensible thing to do because how many millions more must die? Well, seemingly out of the blue came an offer from Lord Rothschild to the British and French saying, you don't need to accept an armistice, you don't need ceasefire, you don't have to return to previous boundaries, uh, we can offer you victory. And well, how on earth can you? We've tried everything. And uh, well, Rothschild said, we can secure the entry of the United States of America into the war. Well, how can you do that? The United States of America is neutral and the United States of America uh, has millions of people of German descent and why would America want to get involved in Europe's wars? America's practiced strict neutrality when it comes to Europe's war since um, its first founder, uh, George Washington, warned them to do so. Uh, well, Rothschild assured them that we control the media in America and we can turn Americans from isolationists into interventionists. And so uh, on this basis, uh, Lord Balfour, who was the British Foreign Secretary, uh, wrote the Balfour Declaration. And... Uh, this was addressed, this is not a conspiracy theory, this is historical fact, this is on front, Foreign Office Let's Ahead, 1917, 
addressed to Lord Rothschild, dear Lord Rothschild, signed by Lord Alfred Balfour, who is the British Secretary of, of, of Foreign Affairs. I have much pleasure to convey to you on behalf of His Majesty's Government the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations, which have been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's Government views with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish community in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you could bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. And so uh, Britain's side was to promise the Rothschilds a Jewish state in Palestine, in, in the Middle East, and in, not that it was British to give, but they were about to defeat the Ottoman Empire, and it would be in their power to do so, whether it was moral or not. Uh, and America on their side would be um, brought into the war on the British and French side. And so uh, this is how the Balfour Declaration changed the balance of power forever. The war in Europe between the powers was at a basic stalemate, and they would have had to end the war and uh, have a peace treaty come to the negotiation table, and normal people would have died, and that would have been the end of it. Uh, however, uh, it was because of uh, the Balfour Declaration that the whole balance of power in Europe was shattered, and millions of fresh American troops poured in, vast amount of American uh, industry came in, and it totally changed the balance of power in Europe and uh, led to the absolute um, collapse of both Germany and Austria, which had been the bulwark protecting Europe from the East for centuries. This led to the United States declaring war on Germany, and uh, Lord Rothschild and his collaborators um, eventually had Palestine handed over to them. And so the British Foreign Secretary, Lord uh, James Balfour, and General Smuts, General Young Christian Smuts, played a key role in drafting this declaration. And there's a kibbutz named after young Christian Smuts in, in Israel, uh, apparently as a result. Uh, all of these facts introduced by Stephen Goodson. And young Christian Smuts was a member of the Imperial War Cabin. Interesting, General Young Smuts of South Africa was uh, the only leader uh, involved in the, in the War Cabin in the First and Second World War, aside from uh, Churchill. So Churchill and Smuts were the only two who were leaders in both the First and Second World War on either side, uh, on any side. Well, the misery of this unnecessary war, and that's the title of another great book by uh, Pat Buchanan, The Unnecessary War, How Britain Lost the Empire and the West Lost the World. Well, uh, in fact, even Churchill admitted at the end of the Second World War that they could have called it the Unnecessary War. And so the Unnecessary War dragged on for another two years, even though Churchill was a prime mover in bringing it about in the first place. Interesting. Well, as a result of this ruinous war, Russia was destroyed. Insoluble problems were created in the Middle East. And um, what Rabbi Raikon prophetically called um, a, uh, the wars are our harvest, for with them we wipe out Christians and gain control of their gold. <clears throat> we have already killed 100 million Christians. We will drive Christians into war by exploiting the national vanity and stupidity. They will then massacre each other and thus give room to our own people, as that's what Rabbi Raikon wrote in 1859. Well, uh, Gutli Schnapper, who is the wife of Meyer Amschel Rothschild, 
made this statement in 1849. If my sons did not want war, there would be none. And that's why Stephen Goodson and others have stated that all wars of the last two to three centuries have actually been bankers' wars. Well, the armistice was declared on the 11th of November, 1918. And even though the armistice was declared on the basis of Woodrow Wilson's promised 14 points, which he violated at every point, uh, nevertheless, out of it came seven months later, 28th of June, 1919, the worst treaty in the history of mankind, the most destructive treaty in the history of mankind, the so-called Versailles Treaty. Uh, and in it, Germany had to accept exclusive blame for the ruinous war and to pay extortionary reparations of 6.6 .6 billion pounds, which was equivalent to the entire wealth of the country. Uh, and according to the Bank of England's calculations, that would have been 289 billion pounds in 2012. So Germany had to pay more money than they were worth, uh, more than the entire wealth of the country, even though the other principal belligerents, England, France, Russia, were equally, if not more blameworthy. So this indemnity would be used to repay the international bankers, the fraudulent loans and interest, which had previously been lent to the governments of Great Britain and France. General Smuts said of the Versailles Conference, everything we've done here is far worse than the Congress of Vienna. The statesmen of 1815 at least knew what was going on. Our statesmen have no idea, which is doubtless so true. And as a result, there was the Great Depression. And naturally, you take down the economic powerhouse of Europe, Germany, uh, where the money became absolutely worthless to repay these bills. Uh, when, you, when you've got to pay more than your, your entire country's worth, that would ruin any country. And with Germany's economy going down and billions of marks not even be able to buy a loaf of bread, well, what do you think is going to happen to other economies? Well, there was a ripple effect. So uh, Montague Norman, governor of the Bank of England, in 1924, made this public statement at the United States Bank Association. Capital must protect itself in every possible way, both by combination and legislation. Debts must be collected. Mortgages foreclosed as rapidly as possible. When through the process of law, the common people lose their homes, they will become more docile and more easily governed through the strong arm of government, applied by central power of wealth under leading finances. These truths are well known among our principal men who now engage in forming an imperialism to govern the world. By dividing the voters through the political party system, we can get them to expand their energies and fighting for questions of no importance. It is thus by discrete action we can ensure for ourselves that which has been so well planned and so successfully accomplished. Well, by the turn of the 20th century, um, by 1900, there were still only 18 central banks. There was the Swedish Riksbank, established 1668, the Bank of England, 1694, Banco de España, 1782, uh, Bank de France, 1800, the Bank of Finland, 1812, the Netherlands Bank of 1814, Norges Bank of Norway, 1816, Österreich National Bank, 1816, after the uh, Congress of Vienna, uh, the uh, Denmark's National Bank of 1818, Banco de Portugal, 1846, the National Bank of Belgium, 1850, Bank of Indonesia, 1865, the German Reichsbank of 1876, the Bulgarian National Bank of 1879, National Bank of Romania, 1880, Bank of Japan, 1882, National Bank of Serbia, 1884, and the Banca d'Italia of 1893. And so, 
uh, at a conference in 1922 held in Genoa, attended by the heads of state governors of the banks of England and France and New York and other international bankers, they resolved to set up banks in all countries where not yet in existence. And the governor of the Bank of England, uh, Montague Norman, insisted the central banks must be independent of their governments and they should all be networked together. And uh, he summarized uh, this, and despite the audacity of these proceedings, they were entirely successful. This is what A.N. Field writes in all these things. They were entirely successful. The paid economists duly discovered that reserve banks were marvelous scientific improvements. The newspapers joined in a chorus of applause, because these newspapers are owned by the bankers, and uh, the politicians of the various states behaved as so many bellwethers leading sheep to the slaughterhouse. The fact was entirely overlooked that the financiers are in no sense public servants, but simply the paid agents of shareholders in a banking company whose interests need not be in the least identical with the national interests. And so the number of new central banks increased, particularly after the Bank for International Settlements was established in Basel. And uh, it's interesting that Montague Norman was a Freemason who was very secretive and operating very clandestine way. He was the uh, head of the Bank of England that state. Well, uh, suddenly uh, Rothschild central banks using usury sprung up like mushrooms all over the world as a result of the end of the First World War and the um, as international settlements bank set up in um, Basel. And uh, the whole purpose of this Basel Bank of International Settlement or BIS was to facilitate German reparations, repayments in terms of the Versailles Treaty, which created the Great Depression and, of course, which led to the National Socialists assuming power uh, to rectify the looting of Germany, which the Versailles Treaty had initiated. Now, in reality, the Bank of International Settlements guides and directs centrally planned global finance systems through central banks of each country, and there were soon 60 different such banks affiliated to it. The headquarters of the bank are in Basel, Switzerland, um, in an ugly 18-story building, which looks like the cooling tower of a power station. It's an unelected, unaccountable central bank of central bankers, which has complete immunity from national laws and taxation. It even has its own private police force. And in terms of the rights granted by an agreement with the Swiss Federal Council, all of the bank's archives are inviolable. The documents, electronic data is inviolable at all times and all places. And uh, this uh, dates all the way back to the Hague Protocol of 1929, that the bank and its property and its assets and its deposits uh, on the territory shall be immune from any disabilities, from any restrictive measures like censorship, requisition, seizure, confiscation within times of peace or war, reprisals, prohibition, restrictions of imports of gold or currency, any similar restrictions, prohibitions. So basically they're their own country, their own government, their own sovereignty within Switzerland, and uh, they somehow have gotten away with this. There's no written agenda for their bi-monthly meetings. Uh, their meetings are held in complete secrecy. The principal functions of the bank are ostensibly to facilitate collaboration between central banks, promoting financial stability, research and policy institutes, to act as a counterparty for central banks in their financial transactions, and to serve as an agent or trustee in connection with international financial organizations. However, the real nature and purpose of the Bank of International Settlements was revealed in the book Tragedy and Hope, written by an insider 
Professor Carol Quigley of Georgetown University, who, although he's an insider, he thought that they shouldn't be ashamed of this. There's no need for secrecy. They should be proud of their goals. And so he published this doorstop of book, Tragedy and Hope, which I have on my shelf. And I quote, in addition to these pragmatic goals, the powers of financial capital had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political systems of every country and every economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by central banks of the world, acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. And the apex of the system was to be a bank for international settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a privately owned bank controlled by the world's central banks, which themselves are private corporations. Each central bank, in the hands of men like Montague Norman of the Bank of England, Benjamin Strong of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, Charles Rist of the Bank of France, Chelmer Schnacht of the Reichsbank, sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans, to manipulate foreign exchanges, to influence the level of economic activity in the country, and to influence cooperative politicians. Don't you like that? Influence cooperative politicians. I think that means bribe and manipulate and threaten and blackmail by subsequent economic rewards in the business world. And so Professor Quigley predicted back in 1966, the ultimate aim of the Bank of International Settlements is one single world currency, one world economic system, and a global government, where national laws are no longer applicable and no longer relevant, and control of the bank lies with the House of Rothschild through its investments in the various central banks. And so uh, they determined that one of their goals was to dissolve the European colonial empires because they were no longer financially sustainable and offered far greater prospects for exploitation and plunder by means of international loans than by colonial government control. There was too much law and civilization in these places. If you could just get the governments of Europe to withdraw from Africa and Asia, uh, there would be much better chance for the banks to start a new um, a neo-colonialism or neo-imperialism where they'd be able to control these countries through loans, through debt, and through the international um, uh, banks and international monetary fund. And this is a coordinated part of an international money trust. And I think I'll just stop there for today because um, now we would be going after this into the Second World War and all that followed then. But um, uh, I think we've seen here, Andrew, something that resonates again. It should ring Pavlovian bells in everyone's minds that the goal of the Bank of International Settlements is one world government, one world economic system, one world currency. This ties in with Revelation 13. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Just fascinating Peter, information. Just... Uh, folks, as I've said, with this series, um, even the title of my book, The Synagogue of Satan, could put people off because a lot of people, they don't know where it comes from. They just see synagogue and Satan in the same sentence and they're like, oh, I can't go near that. They don't realise that that's who Jesus Christ warned us about in the end times out of the book of Revelation. Uh, Stephen Mitford Goodson's book, on the other hand, has a very um, unassuming title, A History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind. So it's very easy to give as a gift if you would like to buy a copy from um, Peter's website. The link will be in the post for this show. But also, these shows can be easier for people these days. 
Uh, I've not read the book. A lot of what Peter has said on each of these shows, I'm unaware of. Um, even though I had Stephen on uh, a few shows with me as well. But the way this information is presented, this is all by a guy who worked at the South African Reserve Bank. He was there on the board for nine years. Okay, you don't get much more of an insider than that. He knows what he's talking about as a historian as well, because as Peter uh, talked at the uh, spoke rather at the start of this show, he ran you through the books that uh, Stephen had written, and they're on a vast array of subjects. But he's a great. Uh, he has a great way of presenting the information, and Peter has a great way of also taking the information. Uh, Stephen uh, wrote for humanity because that's who this book is for to stop the enslavement of humanity uh, that peter extracts and presents very well so i can't recommend you saving these shows parts one and two are still on the website make sure you save your own copies before they drop off and then save the rest of this series and it's the sort of thing that just give somebody part one who's not necessarily receptive to this message just say please could you just give this a bit of time and see what you think of it uh, they can't call it racist, they can't call it hate or anything like that. It's a very interesting story and it will make, it makes sense. Our history, mainstream history, never seems to make sense. But this makes sense. Peter, any final comment before we go? Yes, I think we can really be grateful for what Stephen's done because... Uh, uh, here's a man who who died in mysterious circumstances, very suspiciously, too, after he'd been on South African national television speaking about state capture, naming names about uh, the uh, banks and uh, standing for the, uh, in fact, advocating the abolition of the South African Reserve Bank. Uh, so uh, Stephen Goodson, somebody who actually uh, launched a political party, the Abolish Usury Party, where uh, he... Uh, advocated the fact that this is one of the key issues in, in life and freedom and productivity and prosperity is to abolish usury. The Bible forbids usury. Uh, there's 60 passages, he said, in the Bible that, that uh, forbid the charging of interest in loans. And uh, that was a major emphasis of Magna Carta of 1215 Britain, that uh, getting rid of usury is the key to financial progress. We have to get people out of this debt recycle uh, it's 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 an absolute cycle of debt that drags the country down, and to charge interest upon interest in these ruinous interests, it is it has been the enslavement of mankind and it's led to so many wars, and simply to go back to your yes is yes, your no is no, and uh, loan should be without interest, and the whole banking system, which is built on inflation and interest, needs to be overhauled. We need re reform of of uh, of our, our banking system if we have freedom and prosperity at all. I think he's done a very good job of this, pointing out the fact that the Federal Reserve Bank's not federal. It has no reserves. It's not a bank. And uh, in fact, it's, it's smoke and mirrors. The Bible has many condemnations against unjust weights and measures, and that we need an honest, in, uh, we need uh, uh, honest weights and measures, and currency should be real constant value. The moment you start having interest and uh, you start having inflation, it's a hidden tax. And uh, if people understood the banking system, um, as was well said uh, by Henry Ford, if people understood a banking system, there would be a revolution in the morning. And Thomas Jefferson said the same thing as well. So uh, Stephen Mitford Goodson's book, A History of Central Banking and the Slave of Mankind, well worth reading and remembering. And uh, if you prefer the audio, well, listen to this program again and uh, share it again. Take notes. 
thank you so much, Andrew. If, if people want to get hold of me, my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za and our website, frontlinemissionsa.org. Thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, Peter is also on Facebook as well. Um, just type in Peter Hammond Frontline Fellowship and you come up that way, don't you, Peter? Yes, indeed. No, um, uh, we're very active on on, uh, on social media. I've got several different pages and uh, you'll find a lot that uh, that will deal with these issues too. But look for Peter Hammond or Frontline Fellowship. Uh, we've got several others like Reformation 500 too. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Fascinating information as always, and especially on this wonderful series you put together for us. Folks, you have been listening to The Real Story of the History of Central Banking and its Enslavement of Mankind, Part 3. Thank you all for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, have a wonderful day and bye for now.